Father, we do thank you for what you're doing in these days. And Father, I feel such excitement within me, Lord. Father, because we're seeing the church of Jesus Christ rising up, this slumbering giant is beginning to move. And Father, we know that, Father, in hell itself, there is great concern at the moment about what is happening in the body of Christ. And Father, we thank you the day has come for the quickening of your body, when the, pri the bride is making herself ready for the bridegroom. And Father, we just love you for what you're doing. Father, I want to pray in Jesus' name, Father, that every person in this room, Father, may be galvanized into action, and that, Father, we should realize just what glory you've put within each one of us. Hallelujah. Father, and we're here as your body, and we're here to represent you fully in every way, in every area. And, Father, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that, Father, every one of us should be prepared to reach out to God in a brand new way and, Father, that we should start moving out in what is our ministry. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, will you just show us what our ministry is? And, Father, as we learn what it is and what gift you've given us, that we should, Father, really come into depth in that gift. Father, stir up that gift within us and help us to stir it up, that we might, Father, do that which you've called us to do. And I want to pray, Lord, this morning that you will just guide our deliberations together. And may you be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> Praise God. Last time we had a Bible study, <clears throat> the subject was the whole question of body ministry. And last time was really an introductory session on body ministry. And do you remember that we saw certain very important things? For example, we saw that the head of the body was the one who was there to give instruction and the one who was there to lead and develop any fellowship. It's so important that the body doesn't take over the reins, but that the head always keeps hold of the reins. And we saw, following on from that, that true body ministry is not ministry by the body. True body ministry is ministry by the head through the body and we saw how crucial 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 was that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man and remember we emphasize the every man is given to every man to benefit with all to minister to everyone else and I said that if you're a member of that fellowship it had to be because you believed that that actually God could use you as well to move um, in the ministry. And then we went on to see one or two other things. I talked about the danger of becoming woody, if you remember, I used the phrase woody, people who were quite used to ministering and uh, who in fact had started moving in the natural in their ministry rather than in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and so on. We, we saw many other things. Now I ended last time where we're going to begin today on that lovely little verse which is so succinct and so concise and found in 1 Corinthians 14 which talks about what happens when we are meeting together. So could we turn today to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 <clears throat> and the verse I want of course is verse 26. Now, when we're talking about body ministry, <coughs> remember, please, that there are two aspects to body ministry. First of all, there's body ministry as it occurs in the meetings. 
but there's also body ministry as it occurs in the fellowship as a whole in our everyday lives. And some people get it wrong because they think body ministry is only something to do with outside the meetings or only something to do with inside the meetings, and in fact it's both. Today I'm going to talk about body ministry within the meetings and next time when we go back to the original list of aims that I'd written up, when we talk about our ministry to one another, we're going to see that certain of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are geared to our fellowship life together and how we function as a fellowship. Now here's the verse, and it's an absolutely thrilling verse, because it shows what ought to happen in a perfect situation. In a perfect situation, the Holy Spirit is the one who is in perfect control of any meeting. And in a perfect situation as well, every person in a meeting is just an open channel to God and an open channel ready to receive. And every person is actively reaching out to God and receiving from God and God will then di dictate which actual channel will move in that particular meeting. Wouldn't it be wonderful in, if in every meeting we had there were different ministers every time who were actually ministering? absolutely thrilling and I'm sure the Holy Spirit wants to get to that place incidentally do you remember the little sting in the tail that I showed last time that if people do not minister and don't move out you have actually a paralyzed body you have certain joints and certain um, uh, members of the body who are just refusing to receive anything from the head <coughs> and are not actually doing what the head tells them to do and then the result of that is certain overactive members because a person who limps is actually making adjustment for something that's wrong in the body. And so you have to have certain overactive uh, members. And of course overactive members <coughs> are only doing it because they love the Lord so much. But in fact that tends towards religion. And we must make sure every one of us that we're reaching out to God. Now that's what the push of this verse is. Can I just read it through? How is it then, brethren... He says, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Then it says, let all things be done unto edifying. And the last bit is put in to remind us that the purpose of ministry is the edification of the body, not specifically the edification of the individual. So many people, you know, when they minister, they have mixed motives. They're not so interested in edifying the body, but they're interested in edifying themselves. You know, they want to build up their ministry. I know many, many people like this, who every time they minister, the main push is that they might be seen. And they might be seen to be a minister. So everyone will say, oh, wow, he's a, he's a minister, wow. That's not right. We are here primarily to move to edify the whole body of Christ. And our motive has got to be clear. Now, notice the way it's written. In fact, if we were... Uh, translating this absolutely literally and ex in an expansive type of way, this is how we would write this. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you has a psalm, every one of you has a doctrine, every one of you has a tongue, every one of you has a revelation, and every one of you has an interpretation. And notice, Paul is not here just describing a meeting. If he was describing a meeting, what he'd say is like this. Oh, well, you see, when we come together, someone <coughs> has a psalm, and then someone else has a tongue, then someone else has a doctrine, then someone else has a revelation, then someone else has an interpretation, or whatever it is. And that's how he'd go on. 
But that's not what he says. That's what he would say if he was just describing the meeting. But his main push here is not to describe a meeting. It's to show the full potential within a meeting. And that's why he says, when you come together, every single one of you has a psalm. Every one of you has a doctrine. Every one of you has a tongue. Every one a revelation. And so he goes on. And it's a reminder to everyone, you can receive from God. Don't come into a meeting vacuous. Oh, I haven't got anything. If you've got the Holy Spirit, and if you are close to the Lord, you've got everything. Praise God. So you're able to move. You may need a bit of practice. You know, it may not go right the first time. But you have got the goods because of what God has done within you. Now this is a very important verse, and the fact that he says everyone hath is actually his way of talking about a very important doctrine, and one which actually underlies everything that we do in our fellowship. And it's the doctrine of what we call the universal priesthood. The universal priesthood of the believer. That is actually the push behind this little verse. What the Bible clearly states is this, that every person who is born again automatically becomes a priest. That's what the Bible says. By the way, you also become a saint. That's automatic, you see. And it's no good saying, oh, well, I don't think I'm a saint. You are a saint, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done in you. And in the same way, you have become automatically a priest. The instant you believe, that happens. I was speaking to a group last night, and to tantalize them a bit, I just mentioned the fact that at the point of salvation, 34 things happen instantaneously. And then I didn't list them, you know, <laughs> as I normally do. And I actually said, 34 things happen instantaneously. Well, here's one of them. That you automatically become a priest of the living God. Now, that is absolutely fundamental to what we believe in our fellowship. We believe that when we are gathered together, we're not gathered together just as an ordinary group of people. We are gathered together as the priests of the living God. And no matter who you are, great or small, intelligent or thick, strong or weak, God has appointed you to be a priest automatically. Now, there are certain uh, churches that don't accept this, you see. And their reasons for accepting it are because they go for history a bit. We are, we are those who go straight to the Word of God, you see. So certain churches actually don't accept the universal priesthood of the believer. What they think is this, that certain people are priests, but others are not priests. And so you get the divide, you see. By the way, I'm not just talking here about the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. They believe that certain ones are priests and others are the, the uh, people who go to the church. But you know, I have found that actually in many, many churches, there is a belief in the division among believers, that certain ones are the ministers and others are the non-ministers. And that's the sort of way that uh, things are carried on. It's not just the institutionalized church either. In charismatic groups, I've heard it said. You know, in fact, I was reading one of the leading charismatic ministers just last week. And he kept talking about, this is something the laity can do. That's what he kept saying, as if there's a special breed who are ministers, and there's another breed who are actually the non-ministers in the midst. Now, what we've got to do, and this is very important, is see what is the truth about it. Now, let's turn to the scriptures that tell us that we are all priests automatically. 
Let's turn, first of all, to Revelation and chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And by the way, what I'm doing today is not an attack on other churches. It is a statement of our own belief. Now, this is very important. Okay? And what you must do is you must go and see why others have a different point of view on this, uh, this whole issue. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, He hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. In fact, I prefer to read from the last half of verse 5. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Now there's a statement. He's made us both kings and priests. Another statement of it is found in 1 Peter and chapter 2, verse 9. All right, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And this is talking about all believers. But ye are, you are, individually this is true of you, you are a chosen generation, and here's the bit we want, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. You're kings and priests together. Royal priesthood. And holy nation and a peculiar people. It's very true of some fellowships, of course. But in fact, what it means are people who belong unto God. But here's a statement of it. You are a royal priesthood. And so, if you are taking the Bible as your only authority, you must accept that every person is a priest. Now, if people in the institutionalized church take another view of that, it's because they believe in tradition as much as the Word of God. And actually, I respect them for their point of view. What I don't like, however, is the certain fellowship groups we now have around who say they believe in the priesthood of the believer, but they do something else, you know? They say everyone's a priest, but the way the meetings are geared, the way the meetings are carried on, it's quite obvious that they really believe there's a divide between the two. I go to fellowship after fellowship after fellowship, and I find this in the majority of them. You know, whenever you come into a normal Sunday meeting, you've always got a group of people who are on a platform at the front. And they're the people who can minister. The others may be given five minutes if they're lucky. You see? I'm sorry to use that word, but that's almost what it comes to. And, and you see, you've got this automatic divide. In every meeting you go to, you've got this group of people on the front. They are obviously the ones who minister. And the others are just sitting there. And yet they would say that they believe in the universal priesthood of the believer. And I think that that is wrong. I think if you believe in it, you've got to actually put it into operation and show that you believe in it, you know? This is crucially important. All right, can I just show you <coughs> the phrases that are used by people who believe there is a split between the two? The normal phrase that's used is that some people are clergy. That's the normal use of the word. And the others are laity. That's the type of divide that you get. And I'll tell you, I really feel that this has done tremendous damage in the church, this divide between the two. Tremendous damage. What normally happens in most churches is 
And it's not as bad in the, as, in the Anglican church as it would be in some of the nonconformist churches. What normally happens, say, in the nonconformist church is the man at the front is the chap who does everything in the service. He decides what the theme of the service is about. He decides who's going to pray, and normally he's the one who prays. He then leads the meeting. Uh, he then does the scripture reading. He then makes sure that the offering is taken up. He then prays for the sick, if they believe in that. And then the rest of the week, he's the chap who cares for the poor and the needy, ministers to the sick, and he does everything. And that fellow then finally uh, finds himself totally overburdened, totally overworked, and many, many ministers go then through to nervous exhaustion and even to complete nervous breakdowns. They're lovely men, lovely, lovely men, whose heart's desire is to serve the body of Christ. The trouble is the very system they are operating in actually causes it not to function as well as it ought to function. And so these lovely men find that they're totally exhausted. They've got no one to turn to. There's no one to minister to them. And very often among ministers, there is a complete collapse simply because of overwork. And yet while these people who are the ones who are overpracticed really in moving out are doing all their work, in their churches you've got tens or even hundreds of equal priests biblically who are doing absolutely nothing. You know, who are just sitting there not reaching out to God, not doing anything at all except doing what the person at the front is saying. And so here's an amazing situation. Say you have 300 people in the church. One is moving and moving and moving, and 299 are doing nothing. That is why I believe the church of Jesus Christ is so poor. We see it all the time, funnily enough, even in lo the local area. It's, it's wonderful to be in a body where people are all functioning, functioning, functioning. It's wonderful. And you know, very often whenever there is a joint service or whenever there is a campaign, we always find it's the fellowship that comes, people are moving forward. It's always the fellowship that moves out. But simply because, not any credit to the fellowship, but simply because people have been trained in their priesthood to move out, to move out. They're used to doing and not leaving it to other people. They're used to moving out in that type of way. That's the way it ought to be. So can you see, this clergy-laity divide is not only biblically wrong, it's actually damaging in the body of Christ. I went to one so-called fellowship where, in fact, I ministered, and afterwards, about 70 people came out for ministry. And that's not so bad, except when I started questioning them, I, I found that they didn't have the foggiest idea how to reach out to God themselves. They didn't know what it was to pray for themselves. And I was praying for them about things that they should have been praying for themselves about. And they hadn't learnt how to do it at all. This type of divide, biblically, can only lead to the weakening of the body of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how unscriptural this is, by the way. The word laity comes from a Greek word, laos. The word clergy comes from another Greek word, which is the word kleros. Now let's see if the Bible uses these Greek words um, in the way that would be suggested. In other words, that kleros means the ministers and that laos means the rest of the flock. Well, the word laos is actually used in verse 9. Laos for the rest of the flock. When it says here, you are a peculiar people, the word people is laos. That's the flock, laos. But you notice in the same verse, the flock, the laity, are called a royal priesthood. So isn't that an amazing thing? In 1 Peter 2.9, the laos equal the priests. 
So here, the laity are the priests. Well, that's uh, an amazing thing for a start. It's the opposite way round. Well, where is kleros used? Let's just have a look in the Bible. 1 Peter 5, all in the book of Peter. One Peter five, and here it's talking about eldership. Now, can I just read from verse one? The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And here's the order to the elders: feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, and verse 3 has the word kleros, not as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And the word heritage here is the word kleros. And so it says, neither as being lords over God's clergy, but being examples to the flock. And here's an amazing verse, because the clergy are the flock. So can you see, this is staggering, the clergy turn out to be just the flock, and the flock turn out to be the ministers. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. That the moment you are born again, you become a minister. And actually, it says more than that in the New Testament. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, you are an able minister of the new covenant. Isn't that fantastic? Not just, oh, I'm just a beginner. You're an able minister, because you're filled with the Holy Ghost the Holy Spirit within you, is able to minister. And we've got to come to the position where every person in the body of Christ is functioning as a minister. Now that's why in our own fellowship, every meeting, except for a specific Bible study or a healing service or something like that, is designed to provide an environment for the ministers to minister. That's you. And that's why they're not led from the front. That's why you don't have me saying, right, so that's enough singing. Now let's have a word. Um, brother, would you give us a word over there? Yeah, I've asked you to prepare it, and so on. Oh, that's enough of that word. Let's now do this. Let's now do that. We have an environment, <clears throat> because we believe in the universal priesthood of the believer, in which every believer can move. And you can move in our meetings. I know sometimes it's a bit difficult to get in, but you can move. And you've got to reach out actively to God to receive for the meetings. Of course, we can't force people to move. That's uh, another problem, of course. But nevertheless, all we can do is provide an environment. And that's why every meeting here, you have wonderful opportunities. I wish that people in our fellowship would go to other fellowships. I really wish they would visit. Because you begin to see the type of thing that I'm warning us against how easy it is for religion to creep in, how easy it is for people to say they believe in the universal priesthood of the believer, but in practice do something else. I'm not prepared to do it. It was the universal priesthood of the believer that actually caused me to come into fellowship life. I used to belong to a lovely church, a lovely church, where the word of God was preached. There were 500 people, most of whom were filled with the Spirit. And at the university that I was at, we used to have sort of body ministry of this sort in the university. But on Sunday, it was official church day. And so down we used to go to the church. And twice a day, down we went to the church. And do you know, none of us could say a word. Here we all were, brimming to overflow in the Holy Ghost, and we couldn't say a word. It was all done by one chap, very, very nice man, 
rather overworked, but very nice fellow who, who led it all. And yet I was finding, I was receiving in the meetings. And suddenly I'd say, oh Lord, I've got a word for someone. I thought, what can I do? You know, because the prophet was one of these very high ones, so that the minister could look down at everyone, like this. You know, and there was no contradicting, he could, wouldn't have been able to hear, even if I had called out. And one day I went to see him and I said, look, uh, I said, I, I'm receiving so much in the meetings, and so are my brothers and sisters. Um, could you tell us, how do we start ministering? He said, well, Roger, he said, I think that means that you should go to college to become a minister. He said, I think this is a definite sign that you are a minister. And he said, go away and pray about it. Well, I went away and I prayed, and suddenly I had a horror of great darkness came upon me. I saw myself suspended in the heavens. <laughs> Horrors. And there was I keeping 300 or 400 other people from moving. And I was getting overworked just like this chap was. And I said, Lord, that can't be right. And I began to look into it. As I looked into it, I saw it isn't right that actually God has not provided one or two, the elite, who are able to minister. No, he's provided his whole body to do the ministry down here. And you are able to move out. And beloved, we've got to really guard against anything else but body ministry in our meetings. We've got to be true to the Word of God. And I will not, in my own life, tolerate anything that comes against this whole concept of body ministry. I'm an inveterate, incurable body ministryist. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Because it's right, and it's biblical, and it's true. And it's the way that this giant, which is the body of Jesus Christ, is going to move. People have to be allowed to move out. Some people, by the way, don't believe that it's possible. I remember one uh, quite well-known minister that I minister with coming up to me, and he said, oh, Roger, he said, remember those early days? You know, nostalgia coming out. I find nostalgia has no place for a, a filled with the Spirit Christian, by the way. We're living in now, hallelujah. God's doing new things all the time. He came up to me, he said, do you remember, Roger, the old days? We were so simple in those days, weren't we? <laughs> and he said, um, do you remember we believe 1 Corinthians 14, 26? Everyone have. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, what do you mean we used to? I said, I still believe it. He said, but Roger, it doesn't work. He said, the meetings I've been into where we've allowed everyone to hath, as he put it. Um, <laughs> he said, it's chaotic. And I said, so what have you done? And do you know what he's done? Because they had some bad meetings in which the wrong people were ministering, so they stopped it all. In other words, oh, the Word of God says, has certain teaching in it, but of course, it doesn't work. What we've got to do is this and arrange things otherwise. And so in his church now, they actually have everything led from the front because he believes it doesn't work. There was a time when I believed it couldn't work. I saw all these individuals, still a bit prickly, still with edges that had to be knocked off. I thought, Lord, is it possible for us to meet together for two hours and so be in tune with the Holy Ghost that we flow together? And then we had about six meetings and the devil said to me, it's not possible. Not quite impossible. Roger, it's much better, easier for everyone, including you, if you would stand up and lead the thing from the front. You see? Trouble was, I would have left, because it's against my theology, you see? But uh, it's much easier. And you know, it is much, much easier. Much easier. Because that way, people can go to sleep. That way... <laughs> that way, you don't have to be in tune with the Holy Ghost, do you? You can just come to the meetings out of fellowship and just sit there. And you don't notice, as long as I'm in fellowship, we're going to be all right. 
You see, if I'm out of fellowship, boy, we have trouble. But do you see, it's all wrong. And so I decided in the very early days of this fellowship, we were heading for the highest route, the hardest route, but the highest route in which every person would be given the opportunity to minister and to fulfill his or her priesthood. And that is what we have done. And we've really got to hold on to this. It's absolutely crucial that we do. All right, why is it that certain charismatics who are fundamentalist Bible believers, why is it that they still hold to the clergy-laity divide? People who have nothing to do with the institutionalized church, nothing to do with nonconformist churches. They're just charismatics. They still hold to this clergy-laity divide. Why? Well, let's see the scripture that they base it on. Go with me to Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 11. Ephesians 4, and verse 11. And in verse 11, we have five gifts of Christ to the body. Five specific ministries given in the body of Christ. And we're seeing these re-established in our day. And he gave some apostles. Now there are apostles around, but these are not apostles to everyone. They're apostles to specific groups and specific situations. So if ever you meet a man who say, you say to him, what, what are you? Oh, I'm an apostle. That's nonsense. You know, you're only an apostle to that group or this group, but you're not an apostle to just everyone in the body of Christ. We've really got to guard against this. People are really desirous of status, you know. He gave some apostles, and these are the founders of the churches. For Chichester, I have been used as an apostle in this place. That doesn't mean, say, I'm an apostle to the next fellowship down the, the road or anything like that. I do work in an apostolic way with certain fellowships who've invited me in to smash the elders' heads together and to get the fellowships sorted out. But then it's only temporary, and I always say to these fellowships that if I do my job well, you won't need me in a couple of years. But if I, if I do my job badly, I'm still going to be coming in 10 years. And that's true, you see. An apostle is one who really goes in to provide a particular need. So there are apostles, and he gave some prophets. We need prophets, people receiving words of wisdom, words of knowledge from the Lord, and to warn us, to show us the way ahead in particular situations. And some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, there are the ministries to the body of Christ. And these people have distinct ministries. In most fellowships, you have some of these. But most fellowships then have outside ministers coming in to do the task of some of these. And we have outside ministers who come in. By the way, most ministers will tell you, you can often do in someone else's fellowship what you can't do in your own. And it's so funny to see this. Uh, ministers who've come to our fellowship have ministered in a way that I've never seen the minister in their own fellowship. It's so funny to see it. And I'm the same. My ministry abroad, as it were, or abroad in this country, is a bit different from my ministry here. It's very strange to see it. And sometimes I'm invited by people who are Bible teachers to go along to their fellowship. Now you might say, well, fancy, you're a Bible teacher, but you've invited a Bible teacher. Why? Because I can say things that that chap can't. Very strange how it happens. But there it is. These are ministers set in the body of Christ. And if you read on, here's what they're for. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. This is actually for the equipping of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And can you see that the way verse 12 is written, it makes it sound as if these five do those three things. That these five are for the equipping of the saints, these five are for the work of the ministry, and these five are for the edifying of the body of Christ. And this is the scripture that is used by these charismatics. The little rogue in verse 12 is, of course, the comma. The comma actually dictates the meaning of verse 12. And I have to tell you this, that in the original Greek there weren't any commas or full stops or question marks or anything. And when the King James Version was written, they asked a man to go through it and put the full stops and the commas and the question marks in. And he was to read it through and put them in where he felt they ought to go. Isn't that amazing? And in certain places he got it wrong, unfortunately. And the man was called Dr. Miles Smith. He was a very keen horse rider, <coughs> you know. And um, he was told to do it. And when he'd done it, there was tremendous criticism of him. The criticism that came out was that uh, he actually did it while on horseback one day. <laughs> that he went along, you know, putting commas in wherever the pen landed. And this was one of the verses that he got terribly wrong. Now, let's read this through without the commas, and I think you'll see what it really says. These five ministries, verse 12, are there for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That changes it. Do you see, with the comma, it makes it sound as if those five are there for the work of the ministry. Without the comma, it's quite clear who does the ministry. The saints do the ministry. And so, we have special meetings, like this teaching session this morning, where we are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Now, that's what it's all about. And this is why this is very important. If we go back to the analogy that I gave last time of the body... Do you see, every person in the body of Christ has a function. In your human body, there's no part of your body that doesn't have a specific function. Some have a big function, others have a little function, but they all have a function. Last century, as you know, certain evolutionists felt that there were certain parts of the body that didn't have any function. And they listed a whole list of various organs that no longer had a function, like the appendix, the coccyx, and others, you know. And do you know what's happened? Since that time, we've now learnt that all of these organs have a specific task to do, every single one of them. If you didn't have a coccyx, you'd be in trouble, you know. You wouldn't be able to stand, probably. You'd just collapse. Amazing. They say it's the, it's the remnant of a tail that you used to have. That's what they say. They're totally wrong. Every part of a human body has a function. And every part of this fellowship has a function. Every part of the whole body of Christ has a function. You have a function. And let's just read in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, he says, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And here's a statement of fact. Every one of you has a vocation. may not be a gift to minister in the fellowship meetings, but certainly you will have a gift. And next time I'm going to deal with the gifts that have to do with general fellowship life. All right, so what's the push? We're all priests. Therefore, we can all minister. Praise God. Now, this explains why we have no leading from the front in most of our meetings and why that's terribly important. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 14, verse 26, and let's see what's available.
Now, how is it then, brethren, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, every one of you hath. And what do you hath? What, what's available to you? Well, there are wonderful things that are available to every one of us. And I want to just uh, put some of these up. First of all, every one of you has a psalm. This has to do with music. Now, there are certain people in the body of Christ who have a very definite gift musically. And these people must function in their gift. But this verse says, even if you can't sing a note, you have a psalm. Praise God. And what it means is that as you are sitting in the meeting, reaching out to God, because it's got to be an active participation in the heavenlies, God may anoint a chorus to your heart. Right? You may not be able to start it, but you can ask the chap next to you to start it. Right? We have certain people in our fellowship who, if they start the chorus, it would take us ten minutes before we learnt which chorus it was. <laughs> they are not gifted musically in that type of way, but they still have a song. That's wonderful. And so, you see, they reach out to God. And as we're all gathered together reaching out to God, God will anoint you with a psalm. Be beware, don't ever use a hymn, one to fill up a gap in the meeting. Just as God is speaking to individuals' hearts, there's always the person who can't bear a silence in the meetings. So off they go. You know, oh, God starts a chorus. Oh, I feel insecure if there's silence. So off they go. That's all wrong. That's not the head in charge. Don't ever start a chorus to change the direction of a meeting, right, because you don't agree with the way it's going. Don't ever do that. Make sure that if you start a chorus, it is specifically because the Lord has laid it on your heart to begin it. And you feel the anointing of God upon you to do it. And by the way, I have a psalm. I also believe this means receiving new choruses, new songs in the meeting. Lovely. I have a tape from the Wigan Fellowship, and about three of the, the songs on that tape were received after I'd ministered on a particular theme in their meeting. And someone had just started singing, and out this chorus had come. And by the third time through, it had solidified, as it were, so that we knew what the chorus was, and everyone started singing it. The only chorus I've ever received in my life actually began by my singing in tongues. And I was singing away in tongues, the most beautiful tune. All I had to do was fit the words to it. Brand new songs. Up in York, I told you last time, a man stood up, he sang a beautiful hymn unto God. Four verses that all rhymed. It was wonderful. He received it directly from the Lord. So let's believe that we're going to see that in the midst. Praise God. Some people find it odd. We don't actually give out a chorus sheet, you know, or give out a hymn book. Do you know in the early church they didn't have hymn books or chorus sheets? Didn't have mass printing like that. In the early church they had to memorize every song. Or they had to make up new ones under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. In other words, receiving from the Holy Ghost a particular chorus. That's the way we function. Praise the Lord. You see? All right. So everyone then hath a psalm. And then it goes on. Uh, everyone then has a tongue. And I'll be back to that in a moment. Everyone a doctrine. This is a teaching from the Word of God. And people who are receiving from God during the week, they will receive certain teachings from the Word of God. You see? There are Bible teachers in an authoritative position in the body of Christ. I happen to be one. But this doesn't say that the Bible teacher is the only one who gives out the doctrine. It says we all have a doctrine. All of us, yes. If you're a priest, you can receive. 
That's why you can confess your own sins, by the way. Because you're a priest. You don't have to go to anyone else. You can do it for yourself. We're a priest. Often we're asked, can women be priests? Yes. If you're a woman, you're born again, you're a priest. Automatically. Praise God. You see, whether they can be an elder is another question altogether. But certainly they're priests. Now, anyone can receive a doctrine. And if you are a priest, you can receive a doctrine and a teaching for the, the meeting. Next. Um, sorry, I put that in the wrong. A psalm hath a doctrine, a tongue, we'll see in a moment, hath a revelation. And what is this revelation? A revelation is perhaps an old thing seen in a new way, or a vision, or something like that. And we all can receive these things as we go on with God. It's out of our active moving on with God in our daily lives that we receive these things. And then hath an interpretation, and we'll deal with that in just a moment as well, um, let all things be done unto edifying. And so, as I've said, in our fellowship, every meeting is geared for you to minister in these things. Can I just give one word of warning? Sometimes a meeting tends to go in the direction that you don't think it should go in. What do you do in those circumstances? Well, I used to sit there and resist. I used to sit there saying, this meeting's going wrong. I know the way the meeting should be going, and this meeting's going wrong. And I used to get all panicky. Oh, how can I bring it back? And you know, sometimes I used to go home quite shattered because the meeting had been moving one way and I'd been trying to move the opposite way. And the Lord gave me a vision. It was quite a clear vision of a tree that had been broken off by a blast of wind. And the Lord showed me that that tree was resistant to the movement of wind. And as it resisted, so it got broken off. But then I had a vision of a, a bit of wheat and the wheat hadn't been broken off. Do you know why? Because it had gone with the wind. It had bent with the wind. And the Lord said to me, if ever a meeting moves in what you think is the wrong way, go with it, and as you go with it, he'll bring it round to the right way. And that's what you've got to do, you see. We can all receive and minister. And how lovely. Every meeting then becomes an unknown quantity. What is God going to speak to us about this morning? And God knows what he wants to speak to us about. And so he can start ministering uh, through every one of us. All right, having said that, let's now just concentrate for a few moments. The list, of course, is in verse 26 uh, of things that are available. Can we just concentrate on the three vocal gifts that I talked about last time? On the gifts of tongues, the gifts of interpretation... and the gift of prophecy. Because these are the three that come up most in the meetings, and quite right that they do. All right? And we can all receive these particular gifts. Now, let's take tongues. First of all, let's see that there is a difference between tongues as the initial sign of receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of tongues. You see, the moment a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they receive the ability to speak with tongues. Every one of us can speak with tongues, potentially. Now, there are always those who are filled with the Spirit and they haven't spoken with tongues. Well, normally, there's a reason for it. You know, sometimes they've misunderstood what tongues is. Sometimes it's unbelief about the thing. Sometimes it's because of blockages in their lives. But the Bible says everyone can speak with tongues. 
I remember a chap in one of our meetings interrupted the meeting. We get them occasionally. And uh, he stood up and he says, you're all speaking with tongues. You shouldn't all be speaking with tongues. You know, and he laid out certain rules there and then. And I asked him to come and see me. You know, and he came along to see me and he said, where does it say in the Bible that you can all speak with tongues? And I said, well, it's quite easy. Let's just take our Bible, shall we? And I turned to this verse. Let's turn to it, shall we? 1 Corinthians 14. And verse 5. I would, he says, that you all spoke with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. Now, do you see the all there? I would that you all spoke with tongues. I want you all to speak with tongues. And I said to him, do you see the little word all there? He wants us all to speak with tongues. He said, oh, he said, that's just your version. That's just the Bible you're using. And so I said, okay. We went to my study and we got out every single version that I had. I've got some very, very odd versions, I'll tell you. But we got them all out. Rotherham's emphatic. Well, the whole, I could name them, you know, the Young's literal the lot. And we got them all out, and we turned to this verse, and he went along, and he said, all, 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 and he went on. And he said, I said to him, does it say it in all of them? He said, yes. I said, what, all of them? <laughs> yes. And I said, does that mean that there's one that it doesn't say it in? No, he said, it's in all of them. <laughs> I said, that's right, it says, I want you all to speak with tongues. Oh, never quite seen it before. This is tongues as the initial, uh, as a sign of the initial filling of the Holy Ghost. And all of us can speak with tongues. But let's see something about that initial sign, which then continues. If you go uh, up to verse 2, here's what it says about someone who can speak in tongues, i.e., baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men. You don't speak to men when you are praying in tongues like this, but you are speaking unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. All right? In other words, if you are speaking with tongues as the initial experience, you are praying to God. It goes from man to God. And tongues are wonderful in prayer. You've probably found this as I have, that if you've got a difficult situation or a burden on your heart, you can just pray in tongues and start reaching out in tongues. And everything within you starts communicating with God. It's wonderful to do it. But it's from man to God. And then verse 4, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesieth edifies the church. But do you see, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. And that's why it's good to speak with tongues. We've got to learn to speak with tongues as we're peeling potatoes. Right? My wife does it as she's uh, putting our children to bed. She speaks tongues over them. And she does it in many, many other occasions. And it's lovely. David, uh, you know, thinks it's marvellous. Never heard this language before. And the peace of God just flows as my wife speaks with tongues in various situations. We do it sometimes as we're travelling along in the car and just speak in tongues. It's wonderful. We are praying. We can all do that. And your mind is not being used. Your spirit's being used. All right? Uh, go across to verse 14 and 15. And here is what it's talking about. If I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my, mind, my understanding is unfruitful. And because of that, we can all speak with tongues together. And this is why in our meetings very often, we'll all be speaking in tongues. God, praise God, has many, many ears. 
He can listen to all of our prayers. We're not communicating with the mind, but we're communicating with God, so we can all do it. Verse 14, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. Um, sorry, verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, he says, that's in tongues. I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with the understanding also. If I have any criticism of our fellowship, and I have a number, one of them is we don't have enough people who pray in English in our meetings. We've got to start moving out in English in our meetings. Many of us speak in tongues in the meeting, but we can all pray in English. And here he says, I'll pray in the Spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. And beloved, can we have people, please, who will actually start praying publicly in the meeting? If someone's ministered, stand up and thank God for his ministry through that person. Or stop really praising the Lord for everything that he's done, you know, and, and giving him uh, thanks for what he's done, really extolling him for who he is. And then it says, I will sing with the Spirit... I will sing with the Spirit, and we do. We all sing in tongues together. But I will sing with the understanding also. And so we do in choruses and songs uh, and, and things like that. Now, that's the initial gift. That is the sign that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there is a thing called the gift of, the, of tongues. The gift of tongues. And this gift actually operates in the opposite direction. When you speak with tongues, it goes from man to God. When you receive the gift of tongues, you are actually giving a message from God to man. And we've got to understand that there is this particular difference. Okay? It's very, very important. Um, I think if we go to 1 Corinthians 12, we can see what it's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 12, we have a list. In verse 28 and onwards, here's a list that's given. Now, can I just say this? Some lists go in order of importance. The first one mentioned is the most important. The last one is the least important. But not all lists do that. So I've heard people say about tongues, oh, well, they come bottom with interpretation of the lists of the gift of, of the Spirit. So they are not as important. I don't agree with that at all. Not every list shows the order of importance. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it gives a list. He has become unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, it would be nonsense to say that that list was a list of importance. In other words, wisdom is more important than re redemption. You can't say it. And I found this, by the way, that tongues being the universal sign probably means we need it more than most of the others. And I think, if anything, it tends to the other way, that it's more important, rather like grass, you know. There's far more grass than other things around because grass is much more essential to life. Now, here is a list where you do get a list of priority. Verse 28, God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. There's the order that's given in authority. After that, miracles... Then gifts of healings, helps, which I'll be dealing with next time, governments, diversities of tongues. Now these diversities of tongues are ministers in tongues. This is important. And in the body of Christ there are people who have a ministry in tongues. They are anointed in that particular gift. That's why we shouldn't be surprised in our midst, even though we can all receive 
in tongues if certain people receive tongues more than other people. You see, these are ministers in the gifts. Now it goes on. Are all apostles? No, they're not. Are all prophets? No, they're not. Are all teachers? No, they're not. Are all workers of miracles? No, they're not. Oh, if only they were. But no, they're not. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Now, if it's not talking about the gift of tongues, it's a total contradiction to what we've seen. This is dealing with the gift, not the initial sign of speaking with tongues. And what it's saying is not everyone has the gift of tongues. Paul didn't have it. He says, I thank God that I speak with tongues more than you all. But in the church, he says, I'd rather speak five words in Greek, actually, as it was in those days, in Greek or Aramaic, than 10,000 in a tongue. In other words, he says, my gift is not to deliver a message from God in tongues. Yours might be. His wasn't. He was much better standing up giving teaching, as I am, by the way. You know, I don't have the gift of tongues in this way. I occasionally give a message in tongues, but it's not my gift. And you, by the way, can occasionally give a, a little word of doctrine, but it may not be your gift. You see, we've got to distinguish between these two, and it's very important. And so the initial sign is when you pray to God in tongues. The gift is when you receive a message from God to give to the body. And isn't it wonderful in our fellowship how we know when someone has the gift of tongues? We're all jabbering away in tongues, all speaking away together, all praying, and then suddenly someone starts speaking with tongues and total silence falls on the rest of the meeting. We all recognise that person has a message from God and they're moving out in tongues. Now it's very, very important. Okay? Okay, now if you give a message in tongues and it's a message from God, it's obvious that we've got to have an interpretation. And the Bible actually says in 1 Corinthians 14, if there's no one to interpret, please don't move out in the gift of tongues. But it says, speak to yourself and unto God. That's praying in tongues. You can pray away in tongues, but don't stand up and give a message in tongues. Otherwise, the rest of the meeting's in silence waiting for the interpretation. Don't do it. But there is something you can do if you are a minister in the gift of tongues. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13... And here is, is a lovely thing. You can become self-sufficient, as it were, in this gift. You know? By the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Verse 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. Isn't that lovely? That he may interpret. Now, if you have the gift of tongues and you interpret, then praise God, you can receive from God freely. And this morning, the beginning of the meeting, we had an example. A woman who receives a lot of ministry in tongues gave a tongue, there was a bit of silence, and then she received the interpretation. All right, so just to end for this morning, as time is running out, let's just move on to the second gift of interpretation. And here you always get the wise guy who comes along, you know, Mr. Know-all. He sits in the middle of the meeting, he listens to a tongue being given, and then the interpretation, and he says, wow, that interpretation was at least twice as long as the tongue that was given. <laughs> that just shows how ridiculous this is. Have you heard people like this? Or it's a query that people have. How come the tongue's given and the interpretation's longer than the tongue? What's all this? Well, that's why it's called the, the gift of interpretation and not the gift of translation. 
If it was a translation, it would be approximately the same, but it's not. It's the gift of interpretation. And the interpretation must be longer than the initial tongues. I'll take you to one example in Scripture where we get a beautiful example of this. Go with me to the book of Daniel in chapter 5. The book of Daniel, chapter 5, where we come to the writing on the wall. Now in verse 25, you have the message. Daniel, chapter 5, verse 25. And the message simply says this, Mene, mene, tekel apasin. So someone stands up in the meeting, gives a gift of tongues, and they say, Mene, mene, tekel apasin. Then we all wait for the interpretation. That's four words. The interpretation is 32 words. I counted it this morning. Now look what it says. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the thing. And I haven't included that bit in the interpretation. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Teko, thou art weighed in the balances, not found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Tongues and interpretation. Yes, of course. And sometimes tongues is simply basic words that are given out, and the person comes along and interprets what those words, words mean, that we might all be edified. Therefore, let's move out in tongues and in interpretation, that all may be benefited. Next time then, what I'm going to do, it's taken a bit longer today than I wanted, I'll be talking about the gift of prophecy and certain then directives as to how these gifts should be used in the local body. <laughs> then we'll get on to body ministry in the local fellowship situation. Now, one last thing. The fact that we have freedom to move must not be misused. If you misuse it, unfortunately, the only answer is being led from the front. We have got to, all of us, recognize the gift God's given us, recognize our responsibilities, and make sure that we actively move out to God to receive from him for the meetings. That's what body ministry is all about. We are a royal priesthood this morning, and that's why we meet as we do. God bless you all. Amen.